You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Think about the things you encounter that are slimy. Egg whites, okra, snails, that gunk inside your shower drain. How about a glob of giraffe saliva on your hand? You've probably never touched giraffe slobber, but you can well imagine its gooey, viscous form. And your reaction is undoubtedly, ew, well, I get that. But while it may be gross, slime is grossness with benefits. I'm Seth Shostak, and this is Big Picture Science from the SETI Institute. By the end of this episode, we hope you will, if, if not exactly fall in love with slime, come to appreciate its surprising properties and the fact that you couldn't survive without it. That's right, you couldn't survive. Didn't see that coming, huh? Well, this episode is a twist of slime. Okay, before we can fall in love with slime, let's encounter it up close. A diversity of creatures produce it, and Molly Bentley is helping us to meet one. It's early in the morning, so it's still a little dark. I'm in a redwood forest. I can hear the creek off in the distance, and uh, I'm scanning the ground for the banana slug. A banana slug, when it's fully grown, it's about a foot long. It looks a bit like a banana in terms of its color, perhaps a slightly overripe banana. I understand that this is the best chance to find a banana slug because they like it when it's cool and damp. They are very cold and clammy if you try to touch one, and they're actually quite shy. They like to live and hide underneath piles of dead leaves or in dead wood in in a forest. Hello, my name is Christopher Viney, and I am a professor of materials science and engineering at the University of California, Merced. Oh my goodness, there's a banana slug under this clover moving very slowly, which is not uncommon for slugs. It's curled itself into a question mark. It's not flat. Uh, The top of its back has a ridge on it. It's quite beautiful. And I'm going to pick up this banana slug. I've heard that they produce prodigious amounts of slime. Well, Christopher, Molly's out looking for a banana slug. Uh, I guess she thinks they have appeal. Uh, Any advice for her about picking one up? I mean, they don't have handles, do they? Don't try and pick them up with with chopsticks. It won't work. They're they're very (laughs) slippery. So as Molly forages in the wild to to find one of these uh, specimens, the thing to to notice is if you pick them up with your bare hand, you will find that your fingertips will eventually go numb. 
Plus, the mucus is quite difficult to remove from your fingers. All right. Oh, boy. Okay, I am nervous. I am nervous to do this. I promise not to hurt you, little banana slug. Okay, here we go. Oh, I, I don't know if I can do this. Okay. Oh, okay. It's slimy. Um, and, and he's on my hand now. And he's kind of oozing a kind of cold slime. And my hand is uh, cold. It's hard to tell if it's actually numb, if it's the coldness, or if it's actually the banana slug itself. She will feel this numbness. What 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 is causing the numbness? Does anybody know? Um, if they do, they haven't told me, and oh, I haven't read it. <laughs> okay. So, um, not, not sure. I have touched other kinds of slug and found a similar result, actually. So I don't think it's, it's just confined to banana slugs. Once you've got this goop on your hands, it's not very runny. It doesn't sort of trickle down your fingers and drip on your feet or anything quite so uh, spectacular. It just sticks in a sort of... Um, well, it's, it's, I'm going to have to use a word here. It's sort of, sort of snotty in a, in a sort of uh, congealed sense. Oh, 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 it's so... Okay, it's really gooey and sticky. Once Molly gets over the ick factor, it sounds like there might be some, I understand that she should actually, you know, view this critter with some admiration. It's something we should marvel over. Why is that? They're very effective in their simplicity. So they produce this water-based lubricant, and it really does allow them to, to climb over any, just about any kind of surface. But if you if you figure, you know, what what is a slug doing? It's got its immune system built into its in, into its mucus. It's got something in there that discourages predators. It also uses it as a locomotion aid. So it's not just a lubricant for progressing, but it it, it allows the ripples in its muscular foot to couple to the surface it's trying to crawl over. Um, it can it can turn that wonderful lubricant into a glue when it's ready to. Okay, I'm going to put you back, a little slug actually quite a gentle creature. Oh, it suction cupped or glued itself onto my hand. Something that puzzled people for a, a long time is if a slug climbs up a window pane, I mean, that in itself is an interesting question. How does it use something slippery to lubricate its passageway up a vertical slippery surface? Well, it does that because of the rather complex flow properties or rheological properties of, of mucus. But when it wants to take a nap, it, you'd expect some sort of squishy sound to happen and you'd slide down this window pane and then wake up at the bottom after you've had your nap. Slugs don't do that. They can glue themselves in position. Snails can do that too. They glue themselves in position. And when it's time to wake up and move on, yeah, they can do that. Okay, so pulling it off was like pulling off something that had epoxy on it. Uh, so my hand is covered with a sticky goo right now. It's quite viscous. I'm going to try pouring this water. Once it's on your fingers, it is a real bear to get off. Try running water and soap, and it, it still it just sticks. Okay, the more that I pour that, the slimier my hand becomes. It's just, it's just slimy. <laughs> well done, banana slug. What a defense system. I am not going to pick up another banana slug again. Probably the best way to get it off is take a piece of paper towel, uh, make a little tunnel with one hand, which hopefully you didn't use on the slug, stick your fingers one by one into this tunnel of paper and pull it off, uh, gripping fairly tightly, and you should be able to peel this uh, stuff off your fingers eventually. I hope she takes some paper towels with her. 
it's still, oh my goodness. Okay, I've rinsed it with water. I've been wiping it with a napkin and there's still a slimy film on my hand. Amazing. Uh, they can also navigate by their trails. So imagine a slug is left a trail and another slug comes along and intersects that trail, which was left by the first slug. And the second slug can read information out of the trail of that first slug, and it can read out which way that trail was laid down. It can also figure out how recently this trail was put down. It can also tell something about the gender of that first slug. The banana slug is now slowly making its way away from me. That was probably one of the most exciting things and terrifying things that has happened to this slug. Best of luck to you, slug and keeping the predators away, especially the the human animals. My hand is still sticky. So you were impressed by by that banana slug. I'm impressed by the amount of slime that that banana slug produced. I mean, it was incredible, Seth. I mean, it really was like had you poured some kind of glue on my hands. But it did well because I did release him back to the redwood forest. Well, I guess the slime kind of compensates for the fact that if this this guy sees a predator coming, it uh, can't really get out of the way very quickly. Well, that's right. We're not done with the banana slug, though. Now that I've met the banana slug up close, I have a couple more questions for Christopher Viney. Christopher, that was quite an experience holding this banana slug. And, And so I want to ask you, when we feel that something is slimy to the touch... What are we feeling? What produces that slimy feeling in the case of a banana slug? So mucus is uh, basically a solution of mucin, which is a polymer molecule in water. Now, what is mucin? Mucin is a glycoprotein. And a glycoprotein, you've got a protein backbone. So so it's, it's a polymer of amino acids making a protein backbone. And then sticking off of that backbone are sugar, polysaccharides, so polymerized sugars, side chains. And those side chains, in the appropriate amount of water and under the right conditions, they start to interact and they align relative to each other. So you can imagine a region in this in this solution which has got lined up sugar molecules and the, the stuff really becomes quite quite a good lubricant. Okay, so the, the molecules line up, I understand that, but it doesn't explain why it's so slippery. So what gives it the soft, slimy feeling? So it it is the physical ability to slide molecules past each other very easily. The picture I'd like you to perhaps think about is is, uh, logs floating down a river. And what the lumberjack's job is to do is to venture out and try to cause the logs to line up in the direction of the flow of the river because then you know, everything goes smoothly and the logs will keep on moving. If they, if they end up at some angle to the direction of flow and they start to jam, then, then nothing happens. So it's the ability of molecules to respond and line up in, in response to, to the sheer forces that they experience when you're sliding your finger along the slug or when the slug itself is sliding along whatever it's trying to walk around on. That's, that's that physical structure of the fluid that induces the slipperiness. You gave some of the examples of uh, why the slime is beneficial to the banana slug. And one of them is that it protects the slug from predators. And, and how does it do that? Did the 
predators take a bite of the slug and and their mouths filled with goop and they spit it out or how does it work? Well, I, I imagine these things just taste bad. That's it's a little <laughs> bit hard to get a grip on these animals. I'm not going to put the taste to the test myself. <laughs> now, you said that the slime that allows the slug to move freely, it was also sticky on my fingers. And indeed, you said it has the properties of being a lubricant and oh. a glue. Do we know why that is, or do you know why that is, or is it because of that crystalline structure that you described? It is liquid and crystalline at the same time. It's a liquid because it will flow, and if you put it into a container, it will eventually take up the shape of that container. But it's crystalline to the extent that there is some local order of the molecules that make it up. It's that combination of fluidity but structure within the fluid that allows it, on the one hand, to respond in a somewhat agile manner when you shear it, but also, if it's in a stationary environment, then they can form the even more ordered crystals within that fluid and reinforce the fluid so that it becomes rigid. Christopher, I understand you have also studied giraffe saliva. <laughs> I hope you have some strong <laughs> soap there in your, um, in your laboratory, but you have studied giraffe saliva. Why are you studying giraffe saliva? And of course, the follow-up, how do you collect giraffe saliva? Well, uh, why am I studying it? Because uh, any system that I look at uh, in nature is, is going to give me one data point, essentially. So yes, it is that type of molecule and that type of environment. So uh, looking at mucins from different sources, doing different things will give me the ability to relate the molecular level and supramolecular level structure to the optimization of particular properties. So of course I'm interested in looking at mucus in, in more than one in more than one application. The giraffe in particular came to mind. Um, it's it's sort of an illustration about why it's good to read to your kids. I was reading to my then three-year-old daughter from a book whose title I cannot remember, but it had an explorer. This explorer was touching down in different parts of the world. And he noticed somewhere in Africa that the giraffes were eating very spiky food, acacia, foliage, completely with the thorns, and it wasn't injuring them. I was thinking, well, that's interesting. Yeah, that's, a, that's a lubrication phenomenon. I ought to look at giraffe saliva as well. So collecting giraffe saliva, you obviously need to get yourself up to the height of the, of, of the giraffe or persuade them to bend. Um, the easiest thing was to stand on, on essentially a wall um, at the back end of the giraffe enclosure. So I was at the natural browsing height of the giraffe. I held out a deep glass jar with a little bit of food at the bottom of the giraffe, which has an 18-inch long tongue, stuck its tongue down into the glass jar, retrieved the food, and drooled magnificently into the jar, and I was able to collect the mucus that way. <laughs> Christopher Viney, thank you so much for talking to us about banana slug slime and giraffe saliva. Well, you're very welcome. Thank you for the opportunity to tell you about some of the fun things that I literally dabble in in my work. <laughs> Christopher Viney is a professor of material science and engineering at the University of California, Merced. Banana slug mucin, or this mucus that the banana slug produces, uh, is an amazing chemical. It allows for protection, navigation. It lets the slug identify the sex of other slugs. Yeah, I think this is another example of how 
economical evolution has been. You know, it, it doesn't come up with five different things that this banana slug has to exude to, to do all those things. It's like the WD-40 of the, <laughs> the animal world, I suppose. I mean, it does all these different things. What does WD-40 do? Well, it protects and it lubricates. And, uh, you know, I don't know about navigation, but, you know, it's every shop will have a can of WD-40 because it does all these things so well. Well, you think the banana slug produces a lot of slime? You have that in common. You too are steeped in slime, and your mucus has many amazing properties. For example, its ability to really be the home of trillions of microbes that constitute your microbiota. Next, forget teaspoons, tablespoons, and measuring cups. You're going to need a much larger container to measure your body's daily output of mucus. Surprising, huh? Well, it is a twist of slime on Bay Picture Science. you think that slimy substances are produced only by glistening creatures that slither across the forest floor, then what's that box of Kleenex doing in your bathroom? In this episode, we're talking about the virtues of slime, and maybe it's time you got to know your own physiology. Take a look at the skin on your hands, which is, after all, easier than looking at the inside of your throat or intestines. All are lined with epithelial cells. On your hands, the epithelial layer is a barrier between the inside and the outside of your body. These cells also line your throat, blood vessels, and organs. But they aren't the only cells protecting vulnerable surfaces, because among them are cells producing mucin. You've heard about the protein mucin. Remember when Molly was slimed by that banana slug? Once you've got this goop on your hands, it's not very runny. I'm going to have to use a word here. It's sort of snotty in a a sort of congealed sense. And snot is what we call our respiratory system's mucus. The fact that we share bodily slime with cold and clammy ancestors kind of makes you feel warm and fuzzy, doesn't it? Those mucin proteins are found throughout your body. And what's amazing is that the mucins lie in a kind of dehydrated state until activated, which MIT bioengineer Katerina Ribic says is basically all the time. And these mucin polymers, these string-like molecules, they are packaged in dense and nearly dehydrated form in little vesicles. And these vesicles are then released. And these mucin polymers unfold, absorb a lot of water, and then entangle with each other. As it does for the banana slug, your mucus barriers protect you in all sorts of ways. They contain antibodies and immune cells and microbes, all of which are marshalling their defensive forces to pacify pathogens. After all, you feel extra mucus production ramping up at the first sneeze. It's activated when we get sick, and it's in our saliva, too. 
Mucus is a slimy substance. It is uh, made from string-like molecules, which bind a lot of water and entangle to form a network. And this network is highly abundant in your body. It covers about 2,000 square feet, all surfaces that are not lined with skin. And it has a lot of different properties, mechanical properties. It helps preserve moisture on your epithelia, the eyes, the mouth. It also helps protect your stomach from digesting itself. And it has some really exciting functions in accommodating, building your microbiota, the trillions of microbes that live inside of you. 2,000 square feet of mucus-lined membranes? That, that's, that's a lot of square feet. I think it's bigger than my house. Yeah, and that, that if you stretched out that surface, um, that amounts to a lot, <laughs> a lot more than the skin. <laughs> Well, that, that's, that's incredible. Let's take your eyes. The reason why you can blink so effortlessly is because your eyeball is lined with this ever so tender gel polymer networks. Again, these strings, long string-like molecules, they hold a lot of water and they entangle with each other and form this very soft material gel coating on your eyeball. And that prevents the eyelid from sticking to the surface. So it lubricates it. That's one of the many functions you would notice if you were a robot who did not have mucus, for example. Swallowing is another you know, feature that mucus allows. If you didn't have mucus, it would be really hard to speak, to swallow, and that is indeed what happens when you you know, have an underproduction of uh, mucus saliva specifically. It sounds sort of like the lubrication you would find in any piece of machinery. Without that, the whole thing doesn't work. Indeed, yeah, it, it is a lubricant. With the addition, I'd say that it not just lubricates. This is certainly what mucus is best known for and uh, most studied for. But uh, the addition here that you know we've been looking at um, intensely over the last years is its ability to really be the home of those trillions of microbes that constitute your microbiota. Now, is all the mucus, I mean, the mucus itself doesn't have an odor, does it? I mean, it, what's in it, the various bacteria, whatever else that's making a home in this mucus? Yeah, yeah. Mucus itself is a material um, that is not alive, that doesn't replicate. The features that it takes on, like color change or odor, is um, given by what is inside it. Katarina, you've studied many functions of mucus, uh, and one of them is apparently that mucus allows us to communicate with the outside world. <laughs> I, I, you know, I can think about that, and I'm, I'm not sure I'm coming up with the, the kinds of things you mean. The only thing that mucus telegraphs from my point of view is that I have a cold. Well, what else does it communicate? Well, for example, molecules that you smell have to pass through mucus, and some of them will pass through easily, others not so much. And in order to be captured, sensed by the neurons, by your nose, epithelium, they need to pass through mucus. So it is a filter at this place already where, you know, it decides what you can smell. Another example is taste, flavor molecules. Third example is absorption of nutrients. So the nutrients that you ingest, some of them will get stuck in the mucus. Imagine a sticky 3D spider web. Some of them will get stuck and shed, uh, never make it to the lining amongst them hopefully many toxins that could be damaging but then others do get through and and that is important that distinction between you know who gets through and who doesn't go through 
So in the intestines, all right, you have this mucus that's providing physical barrier, physical protection to the cells that that line our intestines, but also our microbiome, which uh, inhabits our gut, is also in that mucus. So yeah, you have trillions of microbes growing outside and inside of your body, and the vast majority of these microbes grow inside the mucus in your digestive tract. And, uh, you know, within this mix are a lot of beneficial microbes that help you digest food, that help you build vitamins, but in this crowd are also problematic pathogens. In fact, it is a wonder we are alive. Uh, so mucus is, is home to these organisms and over millions of years has evolved the ability to keep those problematic pathogens in check while forming a home to those organisms that are beneficial, that helps them thrive. And that means there's been some selection. The mucus has developed the ability, the property, if you will, to uh, you know not give these pathogens free reign. And I just sort of wonder how that happens. Yes, yes. So that's a really important part of mucus where those pathogens, um, potential pathogens, opportunistic pathogens, as we call them, and some of them are constructive members of our microbiota. And the trick here, we think, is that uh, mucus doesn't kill them. That's really important. Uh, instead, it tames them. It takes away their ability to be as virulent as if they could be outside of the body. So it renders them more docile and into a form that makes them more compatible with the host. I mean, we've mentioned several times the mucus that's in our intestines, and it's presumably there to do some good. Uh, suppose, you know, I, I, don't know, I was born <laughs> without any mucus in my intestines, what would happen to me? I mean, what goes wrong? Um, a number of things that would be highly problematic. For example, the moisture, you'd have a hard time preserving moisture on your epithelia. So the delicate cells that um, help absorb food um, and protect your immune cells, they, 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 would, they would not be able to function in the absence of the um, hydrating environment. You see, the cells in your internal linings, they look different than the cells on your skin. The cells on your skin are basically lined with the layer of dead cells that's mechanical, you know, mechanical, um, protective. That you don't have in the in the intestine or on any internal epithelia. So, so, so hydration, mechanical protection is one. But the other is absorption of food. So, for example, um, if you did not have the mucus gel, so again, thinking of some sort of sticky 3D spider web that helps you absorb and enrich for particles that are wanted by the body, then you'd have a hard time um, really engaging and accumulating, utilizing the molecules from the environment in ways that that are productive and are needed for the body. And conversely, there are lots of materials and particles, living organisms that the body would not want to get in touch with. How much mucus do we make a day? I, I don't. I don't mean the entire population of Earth, but I mean as an, <laughs> as an export item, perhaps. Uh, as an individual, how much mucus do I produce each day, roughly? So roughly, roughly, probably about a gallon a day, several liters. A gallon a day. I mean, isn't that more than the amount of urine I produce a day? It, it's mostly water. Right? It's mostly water. Um, these molecules are highly hydrating molecules. They capture a lot of water. So much of this volume is water. But yeah, mucus on all surfaces pretty much is continuously shed and renewed. And that is a really important part of its function. Katerina, I go to a lot of science fiction films, even if they're bad ones. And I notice that the aliens, which are mostly hostile, uh, always seem to have a lot of mucus. Uh, you know, what... <laughs> Does that say something about the evolutionary adaptation on some of these worlds? 
Or is it simply because, you know, on Earth, you know, our fearsomest predators have a lot of mucus because they're about to eat us or something? I mean, why, why do the aliens always have, you know, drippy mucus mouths? <laughs> That's a, that's a great question. Um, almost poetic, I would say. Um, so there are, yes, in the animal world, for example, if you take hagfish, for example, there are animals that shed copious amounts of mucus to protect themselves, to suffocate their predators. So a sheer mechanical defense barrier. And that is a really fascinating piece of defense um, that I think is played on in these movies. There's also generally by kids a fascination of this material as a you know, a shape-shifting, multifunctional and exciting, <laughs> somewhat mysterious substance that can do all sorts of things. Yeah, there are books about snot for kids. But, <laughs> but, but you know, as a, a biologist, or at least you know a lot about biology, I mean, would you expect that if we were to find aliens that some of them would have mucus? I mean... Yes, absolutely. All right. Yeah, you can store a lot of information in mucus. Um, <laughs> well, I'll keep that in mind. I'm going to get rid of my hard drive. <laughs> <laughs> Katerina Ribic. Thanks very much for speaking with us. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Katerina Ribic is a bioengineer at MIT. They're graceful and beautiful jellyfish. For, you know, the last 550 million years since their arrival on planet Earth, as it were, but their numbers may be getting out of control thanks to the warming of the oceans and the pollutants that we pour into the seas, the jellyfish are multiplying like crazy. And in fact, in the Bering Sea, the far north there, their numbers today are like 40 times what they were even a few decades ago. But this is a problem that applies to all the oceans. But there aren't too many species that actually feed on jellyfish. But, you know, that might change. I'm Anna Rose Hopkins. I am chef and partner at Hank and Bean. Anna Rose, I wonder if you could give us an overview of the project that you participated in and how jellyfish came to play a central role in that project. <laughs> the artist Marina Zerko identified the jellyfish as a sort of totem animal for this time of climate change. They're unpredictable, they bloom, they're pesky, um, and they're also an incredible, edible animal that we sometimes have in abundance. Now, you're a chef, so were you tasked with trying to make the jellyfish palatable to probably Western tongues that don't eat it as, as often as it's eaten in the East, or investigating whether or not it is a sustainable food source? We worked with Sunset Marine Labs, which is the first jellyfish husbandry lab, I believe, in the world. And they supply aquariums and research facilities and hobbyists. Some of us were looking at the culinary applications. So from the different properties of the jellyfish nutritionally, but also how to make it delicious and how to respect it as an ingredient and not just hide it. The other part of the project was exploring the issue of sustainability, the issue of like the longevity of the practice of eating jellyfish. Like, can we eat jellyfish when there's no more fish to put on your sushi plate? As a chef, you you created meals for two different projects. One was a big dinner and one was a, a series of food carts. And you came up with many different ways to prepare the jellyfish. Is that right? It is. That is right. I love slime. <laughs> okay, I need to follow up on that. Why do you love slime? I love slime because it's the stuff of life. 
Jellyfish are like, uh, you know, 500, some people say 700 million years old. They've survived at least two mass extinctions and they're resilient creatures. And so there's something to this slime. I don't know if you know about the cosmetic trend with like uh, snail slime on your face, you know, but there's something <laughs> no. primordial that I think we're drawn to that is like life giving. <laughs> and when you hold a jellyfish, when you are preparing a jellyfish, you're holding it in your hands. Can you describe that texture? Yes. So like any animal ingredient, it changes its property based on where it is. So if you're getting a fresh young jellyfish that is raw, it feels like a really delicate puddle or like a piece of slippery silicon. It's very, very light um, and it smells you know, of the sea. When you're working with the preserved cannonballs, there's more weight to it. It's still slimy, but it's more like a rigid plastic. You know, it, it has more body, more structure. Mm -hmm. Those are the cannonball jellyfish. Describe the taste sensations when one bites down on a jellyfish, because they they vary depending on the jellyfish, as you've as you said. Absolutely. So there are around eleven species that are identified as edible, and of those species, we worked with two of them. We had the amazing ability to work with the moon jellyfish, the B grades, which means that they're not going to aquaria. So if 25% grow perfectly, you've got 75% of B grades in this husbandry lab at Sunset Marine Labs that you know are really just food for fish or food for humans. But they're perfect from the culinary standpoint. And so, like I said, you pick it up and it's like a little puddle, something that's almost hard to grasp, slippery silicon. And when you put it in your mouth, you can either bite very delicately or you can sort of swallow it like an oyster. But no matter what you do and no matter what we've done to it, there is so much, there is an explosion of an amazing saltwater brine. So you're immediately just getting the sea. It's a, it's a very visceral experience. I will say that it does not last that long outside of the water. You want to work with it very, very quickly outside of the water if there's no cure to it, because it'll just start to kind of leach slime. <laughs> you worked with jellyfish that were both wild and those that were farmed. Correct. Can you give us an overview of all the different ways that you have prepared jellyfish and including some of maybe the, the more um, experimental dishes? So the more experimental versions would include jellyfish chicharron. It's crispy and there are a number of preparations. You know, you can get it in a taco. You get it, you know, uh, just in a bag that you snack on, uh, you know, like pork rinds. Of course, the jellyfish jerky, which if you can get over the amount of time it takes to chew, it's actually very pleasant. <laughs> and so with the jellyfish uh, dehydrated powder, we played with making you know, crisps. And the jellyfish beignets, where you can sort of, the jellyfish can become whatever you want it to be. So any kind of crunchy, watery sort of fruit, if you dress it in that way, for instance, with, you know, cinnamon sugar and fold it in, you know, you'd be hard pressed to know that you're not eating an apple. 
When you in- introduced um, these dishes to the participants in this experiment, the potential diners, I guess you had to tell them what they were eating. But prior to their taking the first bite of the dishes that you prepared, were they resistant to doing so? Or these diners were open to doing it because they were there and they were willing to. uh, But did they have an ick feeling going into it? (laughs) Absolutely. I would say 90% were treating this like a fear factor challenge. (laughs) Um, And I think part of it is the experience that we have maybe from childhood or even more recently on vacation of being stung or being afraid of being stung. And then there's the whole thing with slime. And I I should actually mention that one of the most amazing things about the moons is they're considered, um, this is according to Nancy at Sunset Marine Labs, the teddy bear of jellyfish because they have such a low neurotoxicity. So part of the fear factor is feeling like you're going to put this in your mouth and it's going to it's going to sting you. It's an incredibly transformative experience to then eat something like that raw moon because you're not going to get stung, but the salt is going to tingle your tongue. So you will have a very um, electric sort of experience in your mouth. Finally, Anna Rose, what did you learn from this project in preparing the jellyfish many different ways uh, to the possibility of it being a potential food source for the future globally? But what did you learn from all of this? I learned that the jellyfish is an incredible gateway experience to eating in the Anthropocene. And I think that people can uh, challenge themselves and have this experience of something that is older than we are, predating us, that is in some ways part of us. I think it's a great adventure. Anna Rose Hopkins, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Anna Rose Hopkins is a chef at Hank and Bean in Los Angeles. We're not done with slime, moving on from animal goo to an abundant source that's found in the plant kingdom. They're so common that it's really almost impossible to leave a tablespoon of water out on your counter for any long period of time and not grow your own crop of algae. Next, the stuff you swim in and ingest with every spoonful of ice cream. It's a twist of slime on Big Picture Science. know you've been slimed. Mucus, as we heard, covers over 2,000 square feet of tissue in our bodies. But slime abounds in the ocean, too, where microalgae can form a layer many hundreds of feet deep. 
all algae, whether they are the microscopic kind or seaweeds, have a coating of phycocolloid that is slimy to the touch. Those phycocolloids are the slimy coating on algae that also serve as protection, similar to the way mucus protects us. You may be most familiar with two forms that occasionally land on your dinner plate, agar, which is found in processed cheese, jelly, and some meat products, and carrageenan, which is found in instant puddings and salad dressings. Both of those are phycocolloids. We can be somewhat put off by algae, pond scum, because it's slimy and icky or, or because it can show up in places you haven't cleaned for a while. But you might develop a more sympathetic attitude towards algae if you're also a fan of breathing oxygen. I am. For most of the first two billion years of Earth's history, there was really no oxygen in the atmosphere. But cyanobacteria, blue-green algae, were working tirelessly to prepare the air for your eventual first breath. These very early cyanobacteria floated around in the vast ocean, doing nothing but multiplying themselves like crazy, but all the while pumping out a little bubble of oxygen every time they grabbed carbon dioxide and split water and put it together to make sugars. So they were gradually, very slowly, filling the Earth with free oxygen. We wouldn't have more than single-celled creatures if it hadn't been for cyanobacteria's ability to produce oxygen. Today, 21% of our atmosphere is oxygen. If we hadn't first had algae and then plants, then we never could have fed the first amphibians that crawled out of the water. And after amphibians, mammals. But in case those algae accomplishments are too far in the distant past for you to adequately appreciate, note that there are other reasons to join the pro-algae camp today. For one, they may be the basis for food and fuel in the future. Ruth Cassinger is the author of Slime, How Algae Created Us, Plague Us, and Just Might Save Us. The slime on algae, you could say, is like an umbrella for algae. Back 3.8 billion years ago, when algae cyanobacteria were first multiplying, they faced a great danger from ultraviolet radiation because they had yet to produce oxygen that was free in the atmosphere and could float up to create an ozone layer. There was no ozone layer, and that meant that UV radiation poured down on the Earth. And if they hadn't developed this slimy covering, they would have had their DNA fried. It was a protective armor from excessive radiation. You know, when I try and picture what algae look like, I'm thinking of some sort of mass of greenish stuff. And if you say, well, yeah, but what, what does one organism look like? I actually don't know. Well, they come in all kinds of shapes, but most algae are microscopic. And they fall into two categories cyanobacteria, which are internally very simple, and microalgae, which have little organelles and have a membrane-bounded nucleus. But if you were to look at them under a microscope, you could see some that are perfectly round, some that are shaped like a spiral staircase, uh, some that even uh, look like tiny jewel boxes covered in either white or clear plates. They can be quite beautiful. So there are various kinds of algae. I mean, there's not just, you know, this is it. This is your prototypical alga, and uh, you don't need to look any farther. 
No, it's, it's almost as if there's an entire zoo of algae. You do have to look at them carefully if you're interested in the microscopic kind, but of course you can see seaweeds and notice how varied they are. Some look like shrubs and some look like almost like flags. Some are growing close to the bottom of the ocean floor. And some, like the sargassum that we see out in the middle of the ocean and that are now rolling in 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 great clouds on the beaches of Mexico, are free-floating and they're golden-colored, which is to also remind myself to mention that algae carry all kinds of pigments so that you can see green algae and brown and red and golden and even blue. Well, algae are really interesting. I mean, I don't think you dispute that. But they might be beyond beautiful. They might be useful. For example, some algae produce oil, right? That's right. All algae store some of their excess energy as oil, just as the way plants store excess energy as starches, and we unfortunately tend to store ours as solid fat. They can store up to 85% of their volume as oil. And this has been a very intriguing fact for people who are interested in finding alternatives to fossil oil to use as energy to power our cars, trucks, and jet planes. Is this even practical? Could you produce enough oil to be interesting this way? Well, you certainly could. It's a very young technology. Really, only since 2008 has anyone gotten serious about producing it in a commercial way. All right. Well, uh, carrageenan, I'm not sure I pronounced that correctly. You did. Okay. Well, that's a substance produced by uh, these algae that was discovered quite some time ago. It's still used today. What is it, and what do we use it for? Well, remember when I said that the sliminess of algae is a phycocolloid? That's a fancy carbohydrate, and that is what carrageenan is. And if you take seaweed and boil it gently, you will get the slimy stuff, the carrageenan, we'll call it, off of the seaweed. Carrageenan is quite a little powerful molecule. Just a little bit goes a long, long way as an emulsifier and a substance able to suspend liquids. And we have been using it for hundreds of years. Today, you can find it in shampoo, where it's going to keep the liquid components of the shampoo mixed. You can find it in chocolate milk, where it keeps the cocoa suspended in the milk. Uh, Sometimes it is used to cover pills so that they don't fall apart in our throats. So if I put a salad dressing from the store on my salad, I'm I'm pouring some, I don't know, some, some product from algae onto my salad. Is that right? That is absolutely right. We ingest it more often than you would think. What about ice cream? Yep, it's in ice cream to keep the ice cream from forming crystals. It's useful, seaweed. I mean, who would have said it's useful, but apparently it is. Can they grow anywhere? I mean, what's the range for uh, these, you know, algae? I mean, where, where can I find them? You can find them almost anywhere. They form a 600-foot thick layer on the ocean invisible, the microalgae and cyanobacteria, but there are so many that if you're out there swimming and you swallow one drop of water, you will certainly have swallowed several thousand algae. 
You can also find them in deserts. You can find them in the Arctic or in the Sierra Nevada mountains. In, in the mountains, there's a, a wonderful kind that has a pink pigment and therefore turns the snow pink. And people call it watermelon snow, and it's really quite beautiful. So you're going to find algae really everywhere. Ruth Cassinger, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Thank you very much for having me. Ruth Cassinger is the author of Slime, How Algae Created Us, Plague Us, and Just Might Save Us. So the big picture here about slime, I mean, slime tends to repulse us, and I think that is because we learned that it should repulse us when we were kids. I mean, very young kids like to play with slimy stuff. I think part of that is just to, you know, offend their parents. Right, gross each other out. Gross each other out. But, you know, it's also true that the parents have a reason to tell you not to go lick the snot coming off some other kid's nose. <laughs> well, yeah, because you can pass colds and other pathogens that way, right? I don't know if kids lick snot off each other's nose. That's, well, that's I, new to me, but okay. Yeah, and also in the New York City subways, you know, no spitting allowed. In other words, keep your mucus to yourself, Buster. <laughs> well, that's right. And we're taught not to like slimy things, but we are slimy things. And, and why is it that we believe we are so different from the banana slug? Because we're all animals. Humans are animals, too. Well, yeah, that's true, but I, I like to think that I'm different from a banana slug. Well, why? I mean, well, the, the banana slug can do a lot of amazing things that you can't do. Well, that's true, but on the other hand, the banana slug is not likely to, uh, you know, uh, write a great novel. I mean, you got to say that about banana slugs. Well, that's but, an arbitrary marker. I think it is. <laughs> well, okay. Maybe I'm not going to slide along the forest floor on a bed of mucus. That's true. But but I'm, I'm not here to discuss whether we're better than this animal or better than that animal. I would just point out that uh, when it comes to slimy stuff, you know, those little banana slugs probably don't produce a gallon of mucus every day. And I do. And I'm proud. Well, okay. So you produce more mucus than the banana slug. But I'll say this. When you walk out of the room... We don't know where you've gone. <laughs> you don't leave a trail <laughs> so we can find you and bring you back in here so you can record something. Uh, yeah, so that's one way in which the banana slug has something over you. But, but okay, slime is this amazing product of evolution, right? It protects animals and plants. It's a form of communication, uh, lubrication. Yeah, it's a wonder product, no doubt about that. And slimy things that are not animals, slimy things like algae, which helped create a livable planet, might help make the planet livable in the future if they become a source of fuel or of food. Yeah, that may be coming down the road. I might point out that we're already, in some sense, we're already burning algae because the the gasoline you buy at the local station is, you know, the remains of algae that lived uh, hundreds of millions of years ago. All hail slime. <laughs> and you could imagine if it were hailing slime. Now, that really might be gross. Yes. But, but, but let me remind you, I produce, you don't have to hail it, but I produced a pail of it in the past 24 hours.
Thanks to those who give oxygen to this show every week, senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producer Sarah Derwin. I'm executive producer Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky David and Sammy David and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization whose scientists study the origin and nature of life, including the evidence for ancient water on Mars. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak, and I just love algae when it's in Rocky Road ice cream. Also, a big thanks to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to an episode of Big Picture Science that's called A Twist of Slime. If you like your ears attuned to more Big Picture Science, well, you'll find past episodes in our archive at bigpicturescience.org. You'll also find links there to the guests you've heard. You may be listening to our radio show, but you can also listen to BiPiSci by subscribing to the BiPiSci podcast. You'll find links on our website to the platforms that carry us.